would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. If you're using the red covered Bibles and the chairs around you, the page of our passage is printed there for you. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 down through verse 23. As I was speaking with Mark Ryan this week and hearing that he wasn't going to be able to come, I was thinking about, well, okay, what should we do then for uh, the sermon this week? And uh, Mark and I had been talking leading up to uh, this week, and the Lord had laid on his heart uh, to preach on Philippians chapter 4 and to talk about what true biblical contentment is. And so on the one hand, I thought, well, that's what the Lord laid on his heart for us today. So let's just stick with that and let's look at at Philippians four and talk about contentment. And then on the other hand, I thought, you know, the Lord's got a good sense of humor wanting me to preach on contentment on a week that I don't have nearly as long to prepare as I like. So we come to this passage, which is as much for me as it is for anyone else in this room. Listen to what. Paul says here to the dear saints in Philippi. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours. According to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for the very Holy Spirit that caused Paul to write these words. The Holy Spirit that has so preserved your word that we can read it today. We pray for that same Holy Spirit to be actively at work in these moments as we seek to understand your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, press deeply your word into us. Help us to see what we need to see and to learn what we need to learn. And above all things, Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see his grace and mercy. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it's not very often that you hear a quote from Madonna in a Sunday morning sermon. And that's generally a good thing. But this is a good one. It's a time when she 
was being honest and transparent. And you probably have heard it before. It was a while ago she was interviewed in the magazine Vogue. And this is what she said. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I've pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I am mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me because even though I've been somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now, that's an honest and transparent statement from somebody who's struggling to find contentment. And I wonder if we can relate And the answer is, of course, we can relate. Of course, we can relate because we all struggle with finding and keeping contentment of having lives that are characterized by contentment. And you can see the lack of contentment in our lives by reflecting on the things that we struggle with. Restlessness. Always having to do things and finding it hard to just be. Jumping from one activity to another in order to stay busy. Being more comfortable with bad drama in our lives than without it. Boredom. Never being satisfied in our vocations. Never being satisfied with our spouses. Buying things that we don't need and can't afford. Constantly being critical. Doubting God's promise to always provide for us. Doubting God's promise to never leave or forsake us. Doubting God's word that says that we are fully and forever accepted by him through our relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. We're people that struggle with discontent hearts. Contentment is something that pretty much everybody struggles to find and to keep. For some of us, it's simply a season that we go through every once in a while when we find ourselves discontent. For others of us, we spend most of our lives in a state of discontentment. And for some, we never experience what the Bible calls true contentment. And yet, biblical contentment is something that all of God's people are meant to pursue with intentionality and with purpose. And so the question for us today is, are you? Is it on your daily list of things to do to intentionally and in a focused way pursue biblical contentment? Paul understood that struggle as well. He talked about it in a number of his letters and writings, including in this letter to the Christians in Philippi in the first century. So what I want us to do today is just take a little bit of time to see what he says. We're going to look at three things in particular. What is contentment? Why we need to have it? And lastly, how we can get it. So first of all, what is contentment? It's actually 
not necessarily easy to define. It's much easier to see and to know what discontentment is. We, we know that. We know what that looks like. We, we know what that feels like. It is, it's a restlessness. It's an unhappiness with the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But contentment is not simply the opposite of being discontent. It's not just being happy. It's not just being okay with whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Biblical contentment is something more than that. So what does Paul tell us in these verses about what it is? What we'll notice in verses 11 and 12, the first thing that he tells us is that contentment is something that we have to learn. Uh, Look at what he says. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Twice in those two verses, Paul says that he has learned contentment. The Greek word that he uses there is important. It means to gain knowledge or skill by instruction or to come to realize something through experience or practice. You see what Paul is saying here. Contentment is something that takes time. It's something that we, we, we have to practice. It's something that we experience. It's, it's not like a light switch. When we find ourselves in a moment of discontent and we just flip the switch and automatically we're content. No, what Paul is talking about here is a process. He's talking about something that takes time. He's talking about something that, that takes a lot of work. It's a process of learning something over time. You know that commitment, or excuse me, contentment used to be a virtue that was seen as valuable and worthy. In previous cultures, they saw contentment as something that was worthy of our time to try to learn and to try to experience and to practice. It was held up as something important to do. But that's not so much the case today, is it? Contentment is almost seen as a weakness. Mark Ryan actually has an interesting illustration about this reality. He shared it with me this week. He talks about the sport of solo synchronized swimming. Now let that sink in for a second. Solo synchronized swimming. We know what synchronized swimming is. That's when uh, usually it's women, uh, two women, maybe a team of women, maybe 10, maybe 50 women are in a swimming pool. They're all dressed together in matching swimsuits and headgear, and, and they are swim dancing in the water, sometimes above the water line, sometimes below the water line. But they are in complete sync with one another. But this is solo synchronized swimming, not with two or 10 or 20 or 50 in the pool, but just one. It was actually a sport in the Olympics from 1984 to 1992. And then it was dropped because it had earned very little respect and it was pretty widely derided and not seen as a valuable Olympic sport. Now, here was Mark's point. Today, the value of deliberately pursuing contentment has about as much appeal to us as training for a place on the solo synchronized swim team. Just like the Olympic competition 
taking the time that is needed to learn contentment earns little respect and is often derided as weakness, as a failure to excel, as a settling for mediocrity. But what does Paul say? Paul says that it is worthy to be learned. It is something that we need to spend the time and experience and practice and go through the process of learning. It is something that we need to learn. But notice the end of verse 12, he says something else about contentment, it is, it, that it's a secret. You see it in verse 12, he says uh, that I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I think what he means there is that this kind of contentment, this, this biblical contentment, is, it's not something that's intuitive in our culture. It's not something that we see widely out there. It's not something that is common. You you can't just conjure this contentment up within yourself. You have to learn it. You have to come to understand what it looks like and what it feels like. So what does it look like and feel like? Well, when we look at the word that Paul used here for contentment, we, we start to understand. The Greek word that he uses for contentment has a sense of a sufficient peace. And strength and even rest in the midst of whatever we're going through in life. A sufficient peace and strength and rest. But it is a strength of uh, sufficient peace and strength and rest that doesn't come from within us. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. I can do all things. But that doesn't end his sentence, does it? I can have all contentment within myself. I can conjure it up within myself. Now, what does he say in the context of speaking about contentment? He says, I can do all things. I can be content through him who strengthens me. He's speaking about Jesus. The peace and strength and rest that comes through Jesus. It's such a fantastic word. The word strengthens. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite. Do you see what he's saying here? He says, I can experience, I can learn, I can experience contentment through Jesus who brings explosive power to strengthen me to do it. It's something similar that Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Now listen, listen to Paul's words. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And that verse has even more meaning to us when we understand that the word sufficiency is the very same word that Paul uses here for contentment. He is saying God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you can have biblical contentment in all things at all times. So that you may abound in every good work. And how do you do it? Well, it's because God is at work making his grace abound to you. It is God who is working it in you. 
Now we're really starting to get a picture of what true biblical contentment is. It is God working in us, his abounding and powerful grace, so that in all things, at all times, we can have peace and strength and rest. Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan, wrote a little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I would highly commend it to you. In that book, he says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You see what Paul is saying and what Burroughs is saying That as God is working in us, making his grace abound in us, we can have a contentment. And Paul says, in all things at all times, and Burroughs says, in every condition. And that helps us to understand something else that Paul is saying here in these verses. The contentment that he's talking about is not circumstantial. Did you notice again what he says in verse 11 and 12? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying that he has learned to be content no matter what the circumstance he finds himself in. Whether in low, difficult, discouraging circumstances or whether in high, delightful and encouraging circumstances, whether he is hungry and thirsty or has an abundance of supplies, the biblical contentment that Paul learned was not bound by circumstance. It didn't go away when the circumstances got difficult. And for Paul to say this, for Paul to say this means so much. When he wrote this letter, when he wrote these words, he was in prison. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us five times he got 39 lashes. 39 because it was thought that 40 would kill you. So he got 40 minus 1 five times. Shipwrecked three times. Spent a night and a day adrift at sea. In danger from rivers and robbers, from his own people, the Jews, from the Gentiles, even from false brothers. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Sleepless nights, lacking food and drink, exposed in cold weather. Anxious concern for the churches that he had helped to start. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, above all of that, he tells us he was given a thorn in his flesh. A messenger of Satan. To harass him and to make him humble. And yet, Paul intentionally pursued learning true contentment, a contentment that didn't change with the circumstances of life. How about us? How about us? I had the wonderful privilege of visiting with one of the Lord's dear saints this past week, a 92-year-old gentleman. And we sat and we talked. And I watched this godly, humble man who just effused peace. He was a picture of what biblical contentment looks like. And he's 92 years old. Dealing with all the inevitable health challenges that come along when you're 92 years old. 
and his bride of 72 years dealing with significant dementia, spending most of her days at this point sleeping. The circumstances of this dear man's life are far from easy. And yet, he gave me a picture of what true contentment really looks like. Peaceful, patient waiting for the Lord to bring his wife and himself to heaven. I think it's safe to say that most of us don't know contentment like that dear man does. At least I know that I don't. Especially when the circumstances of life become difficult. We might in those moments become tempted to say, learning contentment in this life, in this world with all of the challenging and difficult circumstances of life, that is just, that's too hard. I'm not going to do that hard work of having to go through the process of learning contentment. I'm just going to be content with being discontent in this life. But then we need to come face to face with what the Bible says about why we need contentment. Perhaps your mind will go back to the passage that we read earlier in the service from 1 Timothy 6. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 that godliness... With contentment is great gain. You see what Paul did there? He connected godliness with contentment. Godliness with holiness. And then our minds go to Hebrews chapter 12, where the author of the Hebrews says that without holiness, without godliness, no one will see the Lord. There are plenty of other places in Scripture that we could go to as well that talk about contentment as as a virtue, as a fruit that should be exhibited in the life of a Christian. And so here's the rub. Learning biblical contentment, no matter what the circumstances of our life might be, it's not an option for one who professes faith in Jesus Christ, for one who's been united together with Jesus through faith. We must spend our lives like Paul Seeking to learn contentment. And so then we start to ask, well, if this is necessary for me to learn, how do I get it? How do I get it? And I think Paul tells us a couple things here in these verses about how we can learn, how we can get contentment. The first is this. By giving generously. You can see that in verses 14 through 20. And as we come to this last part of the passage, remember the context of what is happening with Philippians. When Paul was writing this letter, it had been this church had been planted about 10 years previously. And the Philippian saints, the Christians of this church had always stayed in contact with Paul. He had a special place in their heart. And as he tells us in verses 15 and 16 and other places, they regularly would send him gifts. They would send him things even when he wasn't in Philippi. They would hear about a need and they would meet that need with their own resources. But apparently, at some point, the correspondence between Paul and the Philippian Christians had dropped off. And they didn't know the needs that he had. They didn't know what opportunities were there. That's what he's saying in verse 10 when he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. 
You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. They've always been concerned with Paul, but they didn't have the opportunity. They didn't know what his needs were. But now they do. It's been made known to him. And they've sent him stuff in the past. That He says that in verse 15 and 16. And now they sent him more gifts through this man Epaphroditus. You see, this is one way that the Lord helps us to learn contentment by being genuinely interested in the well-being of other people. By being generous with our time, with our treasures, with our talents toward people around us in need. There's something about living like this, of, of living with eyes looking out and looking for people who need help and assistance and thinking about the well-being of others and then being generous with all that the Lord has given us. There's something about living that way that the Lord uses to teach us what true contentment is. And not only that, but the Lord can use us when we are being generous with the resources that he's given to us as we help others, we can help them experience contentment as well. And did you notice that when we live like this, when we live as people like this, notice what happens at the end of verse 18. Paul says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. When we live this way, it's a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Not only is the Lord going to teach us commitment through this, He receives it as a gift that is pleasing to Him. And as Paul mentions in verse 20, by living this way, we give glory to God which is the most important thing of all. So this is one way we can learn contentment. We can be genuinely interested in the well-being of others and we can be generous with our time and our treasures and our talent. But I think there's a second way here, a more important way, a more powerful way that we can learn contentment. It's not just by giving generously. It's also by receiving abundantly. Did you notice Paul's focus throughout this entire passage. Look again at verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Jesus who strengthens me. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit over and over and over again in this passage. He is focused on Jesus Christ. He is focused on the grace of Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what Paul said in Second Corinthians chapter eight. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He is pointing us over and over again to Jesus. He wants us to look at Jesus. The ultimate way that we learn and get contentment is by looking at Jesus. The more that we meditate and seek to understand the person of Jesus and the work that he accomplished. His life of perfect love and obedience to his father. His offering of that life on the cross to pay the debt that we could never pay. His giving of his righteousness that would be credited to our accounts. 
His loving and persevering and always faithful grace to us in the gospel. The the more that we look and we see those truths of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, the more we will learn what true contentment is. Why? Because the Bible tells us that because we are in Christ, we can never again be completely separated from Christ. Because we are in Christ, we will never be left or forsaken by the Lord. Because we are in Christ, the work that he has begun in us will necessarily be brought to completion and perfection. Because we are in Christ, there is nothing that we can do to make the Lord love us more or love us less because he loves us perfectly in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when when those truths start to get into our heads and into our hearts, as we meditate on them, as we believe them, then a sufficient peace and strength and rest begins to fill our lives. We begin to experience true, genuine contentment, even in the midst of difficult circumstances in life, because we see those circumstances through the lens of Jesus Christ and his grace. Let me close with an illustration that our church family here has heard me use before. But it's a powerful, it's a it's a poignant illustration. I have an acquaintance who's a pastor. But before he was a pastor, he served in the U.S. Army as a ranger. And he tells the story of when he went to go see the movie Saving Private Ryan in the movie theater when it first came out in 1998. Now, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's a hard movie to watch. There's a lot of violence and a lot of gore. I'm not necessarily recommending that it's for everyone. But the movie follows a group of army rangers who landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day during World War II. Now, after helping to take the beach, they were given a specific mission. They were to go into the, into the deep, into enemy territory to, to locate, to find one specific soldier, a Private Ryan. They were to go and find Private Ryan, and then they were to bring him back with him because he was going to be going home. During the D-Day incursion, all of his brothers were killed. The army was sending him back to be with his mother, to care for her. So, as this group of army rangers began to make their way into enemy territory, they began to go on their mission to find Private Ryan. Uh, They went from place to place to place, and they encountered battle after battle after battle. Many of their own died. But eventually, they were able to locate Private Ryan. There he was on a bridge with his company of soldiers preparing to have a stand on this bridge against the German troops that were coming their way. They go to Private Ryan, they give him the horrible news, tell him that he's going to come with them and he's going to go home. Ryan refused to go. He said something to the effect of, if what you're saying is true, that all of my biological brothers have been killed, then these soldiers are the only brothers that I have left and I won't abandon them at the 11th hour. And he adamantly refused to leave his post as the German troops were closing in. 
So the rangers had to figure out what they were going to do. They decided that the only way that they could accomplish their mission was to stay and to fight with Ryan, to protect him, to make sure that he survived the upcoming battle so that he could eventually go home to be with his mother. So that's what they did. They stayed and they fought with the other soldiers there and with Private Ryan. And it was a horrific battle. Gory. Terrible. Almost everybody died except for Private Ryan. Now, my ranger acquaintance says that up until that point, he was proud by how Steven Spielberg had depicted the rangers until the end of the movie. At the end of the battle, the captain of the ranger squad was lying in the street, mortally wounded. He's about to die. And so he calls Private Ryan over to himself and he whispers something in his ear. He whispered, earn this. Earn this. Earn what has been done for you here. Earn all of the lives that have been given for you. Spend the rest of your life trying to earn what has been done for you. At the end of the movie, we see an elderly Private Ryan weeping over the grave of that ranger captain, wondering, desperately wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough to earn it? That's what ruined the movie for my ranger acquaintance. Do you know why? Some of you may know. For hundreds of years, the motto of the U.S. Amy Ryan Army Rangers has not been earned this, but sua sponte. It's a Latin phrase that means of my own accord. Voluntarily, I choose this. My acquaintance said that that's what the Ranger captain should have whispered in Ryan's ear. Not earn this, but I choose this. I choose to give my life so that you can live. You can't do anything to earn it. I give my life freely for yours. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look at Jesus on the cross, we will never hear him say, earn this. We will never hear Jesus say, I have given everything for you. I have laid down my life for you. Now you live your life trying to earn what I've done for you. We will hear Jesus say, as it were, sua sponte. Of my own accord, I give my life for you. On my own accord, voluntarily, willingly, I give my life for you. I choose to have the judgment and the wrath of God poured out on me so that you will never have to experience it. I willingly die on this cross so that you will have all of your sins paid for in full and you will be credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for you to pay. There's nothing possibly that you could earn. Just accept it by faith in me. When we see and we start to understand the kind of love that Jesus has for us, the more 
that that reality, that truth works itself into our hearts and our minds, then the more we will learn and experience true biblical contentment, no matter what the circumstances of our life might be. Let's pray together. Father, we're so bad at learning contentment. But we know that we need it. We know that we need that sufficient peace and strength and rest. So I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that you would more and more help us to understand your grace and your love. And even as we come now to the table... Would you use this as well to reinforce these truths such that we might go out and be people who deeply desire and even delight to spend our lives seeking to learn contentment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.